What do you look for in a leader? Now, I, I ask that question with some trepidation because I, I stand in front of you as the pastor of this church. So please, you know, don't answer out loud. But I do want to ask the question, what do you look for in a leader? Is it someone who can inspire others? Is it someone who can get things done, you know, a GTD kind of guy and make things happen? Is it someone, actually, maybe your, your brand of leadership is more someone who, who can, can facilitate the gifts and the strengths of others and so, and so lead in a collaborative way, you know, mobilizing the team? Maybe your idea of a leader is someone with vision. I just did a quick search on, on Amazon this week. Amazon lists over 25,000 different titles on leadership. That's just in hardcover. I didn't try to figure out how many more existed independently in paperback. 25,000, actually 25,500 hardcover titles on leadership. Now, I don't know much about the bookselling business, but that must indicate to us that this is a topic that we as Americans are interested in. I mean, from, from politics to business, from, from the sports field to the battlefield, from the classroom to the operating room, we understand that leadership matters. It, it makes a practical difference in our lives. And that certainly includes the church. I mean, when I reflect back on, on my own interview process, when you all were thinking now a few years ago of calling me to be the pastor, the vast majority of questions that you asked me were questions about leadership. What kind of leader was I going to be? This summer, we are considering our life together as a local church, and we're using Paul's letter to Titus, the, the book of Titus, to do that. And, and right away, as, as we dive into this letter, Paul addresses the question of leadership. But as we're going to see, uh, it, it, it's not skill that, that Paul's concerned about. It's, it's not vision. It's, it's not a ability to, to facilitate a team that, that Paul is fundamentally concerned about when he thinks about leadership in the church. No, what Paul is concerned about is character. Character. What kind of men should be leaders in the local church? Now, as we consider then what it takes to lead a local church this morning... Out of Paul's letter to Titus, I want to give you a quick listener's guide because different ones of you are going to need to listen to this sermon in different ways. So first, if you are currently serving as an elder at Henson Baptist Church, would you please stand? If you are currently serving as an elder at Henson Baptist Church, please stand. Now, a number of our elders are away, but look around. Here, here are a few of them. Guys, this sermon's for you. I'm, I mean... Uh, of, of all the sermons that I preach, most of them, you know, are, are kind of aimed at everybody. Not this one. This one is for you. Okay, you can be seated. Now, now there, there are others of you here that are not currently serving, but maybe you've served in the past or you aspire to serve as an elder. It's for you too. It's specifically for you. You want to listen to this as if it's a it's a personal mail, because, because that's the way I mean it, because I think that's the way Paul delivers it. 
All right. Second, if you're just a member of this church, if you are a member of this church, please stand up. All right, as, as members of the church, this sermon is also for you. Because this sermon is, is meant to tell you, as members of a church, what kind of leaders should we be looking for? Who, who should we be looking for? And how should we be praying for them? So real practical benefit for you just as a member of the church. Who am I looking for and how should I pray for them? Okay, go ahead and be seated. All right, if you're a woman, would you please stand up? If you're a woman, please stand up. This sermon is for you. Now, if you're married, this this is a sermon that I think should really help inform you how you should be praying for your husband. And if you're not married, it should be a sermon that is really telling you, you know, what you should be looking for in a husband. If marriage is in your future. All right, please be seated. All right, if you're a man, please stand up. (laughs) Guys, whether you're a leader or not, this sermon is basically a sermon that is meant to be a program for your own personal discipleship. Because being an elder is simply really, as we're going to see, being a godly man. So whether or not you ever serve as an elder, this sermon is for you. This is a sermon that's, that's really laying out a plan of personal discipleship, of growth and grace and godliness for you. Okay, you can be seated. Now, finally, I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but if you're, if you're here this morning and, and you don't even understand yourself to be a Christian, how should you think about this very specific sermon that's all about leadership inside the Christian church? Well, I think what I want you to do is ask yourself what this kind of leadership that you're about to hear about, what this kind of leadership tells you, not only about what the local church is supposed to be, but about the God who is the the ultimate leader of the local church, about the God that this local church serves. All right, so that's your listener's guide to, to this sermon. Turn with me if you would. To Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to read just a few verses here. Verses 5 to 9. Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. If you're using a Bible provided, that's found on page 1,857. 1,857. Titus chapter 1. Verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children are faithful and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Paul doesn't waste any time with niceties. You know, normally in in his letters, after he's given the opening greeting, he spends some time just like with, with thank yous. 
and, and, and gratefulness for whoever it is that he's writing to. He cuts all of that out and he just dives straight in. Now, of course, Titus knows why he was left behind in Crete. So here's another little clue that we're given that these words are, are not just for Titus. Paul wants the Cretan churches to be, as it were, reading over Titus' shoulder. He, he, these words really are for those churches to to underscore Titus' authority and, and his mission in their life together. Now, when Paul says that Titus is to appoint elders, that, that doesn't mean that Titus is a, a, a bishop, a monarchical bishop, and he's ordaining these elders and imposing them on the local churches, regardless of whether or not they want them or not. No, it simply means that, that his job is to see that elders are set up in all the churches, whatever mechanism that's going to be. So this is not a good proof text for Episcopal church government. What Paul makes clear is that the crucial matter for leadership in the local church is character. And, and it, it breaks out basically like this. First, verse 6, these men should be proven men. Proven men. Second, verses 7 and 8, they should be blameless men. Blameless men. And then third, in verse 9, they must be certain men. Confident, sure men. All along the way, though, what I want you to notice as we, as we unpack this is that this concern for character is not fundamentally driven by a concern for public relations. You know, we don't want to have leaders that embarrass us. Now, that's not really what's driving these verses. What's driving it is the very nature of the church that they are called to lead and the very nature of the work that they've been given to do. That's why they need to be proven, blameless, certain men. All right, let's, let's take a look at this. First, elders must be proven men. Look again there at verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children are faithful and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, Paul starts there with that general statement that that elders must be blameless. That, in many ways, is really the header for this entire section. And he's going to come back and pick up blamelessness specifically in, in a few minutes. But where he starts, having given us the header what he focuses on at first is that we shouldn't have to guess whether or not these guys are the sort of men who would make good leaders. We should not be in a position where we're having to guess, like put them into leadership and, and, and then find out whether or not we, we made a good choice. No, he, he's telling us that it should already be evident that these are the kind of leaders that you want because you can see it in the way they conduct themselves in their families. On the one hand, he says they should be faithful husbands, literally one woman men. That's the phrase. They should be one woman men. And then on the other hand, their children should be faithful rather than wild and disobedient. Now, now some of your uh, translations might actually say their children should be believers there. And the word that Paul uses can be translated believer and, and actually is translated believer in, in many different contexts. But I think the immediate context here in, in chapter 1 and, and the parallel with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul emphasizes that the children of elders should be respectful of authority, submissive, faithful, 
I think that makes it clear that that the better translation here is faithful. Paul doesn't say they should be. Uh, Paul, Paul doesn't say that they should be believers, not unbelievers. He says they should be faithful, not wild and disobedient. You see the you see the distinction I'm making there. All right. So these men should have proven themselves in their families, both in their marriage and in their parenting. Now, right away, that raises a lot of questions that I want to answer, and I'm going to answer them quickly. I'm going to ask and answer five questions. All right. First, do elders have to be married with multiple children? No. No. In Paul's cultural context, marriage and kids could be assumed. For, for one thing, most marriages were arranged. It's not like you had a choice in the matter. Uh, so, so he could assume that basically every man in that church of marriageable age was in fact married. And in, in a world with no birth control, you could assume that there would be children present in those families. But it's, we, we need to be careful here. He's not commanding marriage and children. He, he's saying that if he's married... If he also has children, you should be able to look at that marriage. You should be able to look at those children and tell if he'd make a good elder. Second question. Do elders have to be men? Do elders have to be men? Yes. Now, again, this is largely assumed in this passage, but Paul goes at greater length in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3 to, to make that clear. Since it's not his concern here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. But if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, I'll be standing at the door. Happy to talk to you about that particular question. Third question. Can an elder be divorced and remarried? Because, you know, the the phrase he uses there is one woman man. So, So can an elder be divorced and remarried? Our own elders here at Henson have not had a formal discussion about this. And as far as I know, we don't have a, a, a written policy. So what you're about to hear is my take on that question. And here's my take. It depends. I, I knew you'd appreciate that. It depends, right? What was, was the divorce biblical or unbiblical? Did, did the divorce and remarriage, if it happened, take place before the man became a Christian or after he became a Christian? Has, has the man taken any steps towards repentance or or restitution all of the the answers to all of those questions are surely going to factor in to our answer about whether or not a particular man who may have been divorced and or remarried can serve as an elder here so it depends fourth what if this man's adult children are wild Literally, the word there is debauched. What if his adult children are are wild and disobedient? Well, I think the context makes it pretty clear here that Paul is speaking of a household under this man's authority. and, and, And therefore, he's referring to those children that are still in the home, who are still legitimately under the father's authority. So while it 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 will be a cause of great heartache if an elder's adult children have wandered away from the faith or are wild and disobedient. It's not clear to me anyway that that Paul is saying that that fact would disqualify a man from serving as an elder. He wants us to pay attention to the the children that are still in the home, that that are under uh, his authority. 
which then leads us fifth. Does an elder's family have to be perfect? I should hope not. Paul's emphasis here is on the quality of the man's spiritual leadership in his family. Not the perfection of his family's response to that leadership. The point, really, of all of this is not that a man's marriage and family has to look like leave it to beaver in order to be an elder. The point is that being an elder in the local church is fundamentally to do with relationships. And if a man has not been faithful with those relationships most closely tied to him by the natural bonds of love and affection, if if a man has not been diligent with those that he must give an account to God for by virtue of biology, if a man has not lovingly persevered with the one relationship that has the strongest claim on his loyalty and desire, then why would we think he would do better with the church? You see, Paul is making an argument here from the greater to the lesser. The greater is the family, the the, the natural family. He's making an argument from from the primary to, to the secondary. And he's basically pointing out for all of us to see, look, if the guy can't lead his first church, why should anyone entrust him with another church? On the other hand, if you've proven yourself in your first church, your family, then we have every reason to believe that you are going to be an excellent leader in the local church. That's the way the logic is working. So for those of you who aspire to be an elder here at Henson Baptist Church, stop waiting around for me to establish a formal elder training program for you. God has already done it. You're in it. It's your family. God has given you the training program. Get busy. Give yourself to to loving your wife and your children. Now, if you aspire to be an elder and, and, and you're not married through no fault of your own, don't despair. Paul and Timothy, they were both single and, and clearly qualified. Give yourself to, to faithful leadership in the relationships around you. Now, if you're not married through fault of your own, well, repent, okay? If, if you're not married because you're just scared of commitment, if, if you're not married because, well, I'm just not ready yet, well, you're, you're clearly not ready to be an elder then. If you can't commit to a woman, how are you going to commit to a church? Let me encourage you, young single men, you know, get married. I know it's not that easy. But, but, I, also, but I also know that, that part of the fault is you uh, and, and, and fear of commitment and not wanting to move forward. So if it is your fault you're not married, repent and get with the program, all right? But if it is not your fault, if you have tried and just for whatever reason, God is not bringing a wife into your life. Give yourself to the relationships that God has given you. Pour yourself into them and begin to prove yourself this kind of man. Now, now as a church, we want to take this qualification seriously. 
a man's faithful love of his wife and, and, and a man's faithful leadership of his family should be something that, that we give consideration to when we think about a new elder. We should be examining that. We should, I know it's kind of, it's kind of uncomfortable. Nobody wants to talk about somebody else's family. Nobody really wants to talk about somebody else's kids. And, and those conversations should be, ha- should be had very carefully with a lot of grace. But we should be having those conversations. Now, it's important to, to be clear here, not to make his wife and children feel like they're under the microscope but rather to encourage his wife and his children that we would never dishonor them by asking a man to be an elder if he wasn't first faithfully taking care of his own family. I I want the wives and the kids in this church to be able to kind of rest easy there. That they're not going to have to live with that kind of hypocrisy in our local church. Now, elders... Brother elders, we want to be men who encourage other men in their families by modeling that care in our own families. How, how ironic and frankly, how wicked if our care of the church resulted in our neglect of our families. It's a false spirituality that honors a man for his leadership in the church, even while his own family languishes. So, brothers, I, I know you well. You faith, faithfully and tirelessly give yourselves to the care of this local church. I want to encourage you. Give yourselves to the care of your family. Not only must an elder be proven. Second, an elder must be blameless. Look in verse 7. Verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. When we read the word blameless there, I I think right away what tends to come into our mind is is the idea of, you know, perfect. If If something's blameless then they are morally perfect, without fault. Now, now the word that Paul uses can mean that. It it can refer to kind of that that moral perfection. But if that's what Paul meant, then no church would ever have even one single elder, right? I I think that's why Paul then goes on and gives us these lists, uh, a negative list in verse 7 and then a positive list in verse 8 to explain exactly what he means when he talks about blamelessness. And if I could sum it up, what what he means is that an elder must be someone whose character demonstrates that he understands the value of God's people, especially the local church. An elder is a man in whom it is evident he understands the value of people and especially the people in the local church that he is called to serve. Almost every single one of the characteristics Paul lists here are fundamentally relational in character. Negatively, an elder shouldn't shouldn't deal with people in a way that that pushes them around, that that threatens them, that that values money or pleasure more than people. Positively, there in verse 8, 
He should be characterized by love of others. That's what hospitality means. Love of the stranger, which in in the Greco-Roman world meant loving somebody that wasn't a blood relative, because those are really the only people you love in Paul's culture. So, so being hospitable is somebody who loves more than just the immediate family, but is willing to love those outside his family. So, somebody who, who exercises self-control in his relationships with others. Who is just in his dealings with others. Who's holy. These aren't abstract virtues. Paul isn't just emphasizing morality. You can be very ethical. You can be very moral and yet terrible with people. Paul wants men whose morality and whose ethics are on display precisely in their interaction with people. He he wants men who are all about building others up in love rather than tearing them down in in pride, self-service. And and he tells us why there in verse 7. The the reason leaders must be blameless in this way, the reason leaders, maybe another way to, to translate that word would be beyond reproach, the reason they should be beyond reproach with other people is right there at the beginning of verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Now, now the word that that the NIV translates work there is, is literally steward of a household. Manager of a family. Elders are not managing a business. They're not managing a mission. Elders are not fundamentally the managers of property or or bank accounts. Elders are overseeing a family. And not just any family. God's family. God's household. That's what the local church is. And that is an incredible stewardship to be entrusted with. It's it's a big enough deal to be entrusted with your own family. But then as an elder, to be entrusted now with God's family? So just as you wouldn't entrust your inheritance to someone who had a shady financial background, just as you wouldn't entrust your, your business to someone who had a history of embezzlement, So we shouldn't entrust God's household to someone who is not beyond reproach when it comes to God's people. We're looking for men who value and treasure people rather than run roughshod over them or use and abuse them. It it doesn't matter how successful a man has been in the world. It it doesn't matter how how theologically smart he is. It, It doesn't matter how financially astute he is or or how good he is at casting vision and strategic planning if the man isn't good with people if if it is not evident that that he loves people and is working for their good and for their edification then that man is not qualified to serve as an overseer of God's family because God's people are too precious too valuable to entrust to anyone else. If you take care in choosing your financial advisor, the guy who takes care of your stocks and your bonds, how much more care should we take in in recognizing those men who take care of God's people? 
for they are far more precious than anything this world has to offer. So seminarians and other guys here who are training to go into the ministry. Give yourself to learning theology. Give yourself to learning Greek and Hebrew. Give yourself to learning church history. Give yourself to learning the skills of ministry, like like preaching or counseling or, or church finances. Give yourself to understanding our culture and how to engage it evangelistically. But do not forget that if you master all of that and yet fail to learn how to control your temper, fail to learn how to put to death your pride, fail to learn how to deal with God's people generously and justly in love, then you'll graduate with a degree, but you will be unqualified to put it to work in the local church. So in the midst of all of that other learning that you're doing, give yourself also to growing in self-sacrificing love for others Give yourself to becoming a man who is beyond reproach when it comes to his dealing with the people of God. To be a man who looks like like these two lists. Now, now perhaps you're you're a man here, and as I mentioned earlier, you're not currently an elder, and and maybe you don't even aspire to be an elder. Now, if you don't aspire to be an elder, i got to ask you, why not? Why don't you aspire to be an elder? Why wouldn't you aspire to, to be this kind of man and entrusted with such a great stewardship. As men, I think we're, we're wired to, to want a big challenge. We are wired to, to want to, to achieve great distinction. What could be more distinguishing than being entrusted with God's people? be recognized as an elder in their midst. But even if you never are an elder, here is a great goal for your own character. I mean, in in these two verses, you basically have a guide to biblical manhood. What does it it look like to be a biblical man, a, a mature and godly man? Verses seven and eight, right there. Whether or not you ever serve as an elder, Here's your personal discipleship plan. And, and, and as I said, wives, is this what you pray for your husband? Is this what you long for in your husband? Or are you praying for and longing for lesser things? They might be really important things. But in the big scheme of things, much much, much less. Here's, here's a, a pattern and a plan for your own prayer life as you pray for your husband. Single women, when you think about your list, and yes, I know you have a list, as you're thinking about marriage, when you, when you think about your list, what would need to change in you so that your list looks more like Paul's list? And not the one that Cosmo gave you or good housekeeping. What would need to change in you as a single woman who wants to be married so that this is what your heart goes after? This is what you long for. As a church, this is why we talk about recognizing elders 
not electing them. Yes, we take a vote. But conferring a title through a vote does not give a man these qualities. These qualities are lived out day to day, every day, in countless conversations and interactions, in acts of service, large and small, in quiet and consistent leadership that doesn't need a title or recognition in order to be effective. And so what we as a congregation want to be doing is we want to be looking out all the time for guys that look like this. We we want to train ourselves to begin to recognize godly leadership. And and then when when we find a guy who's, who's displaying these qualities among us, well, let's publicly recognize him. Let's make it official. Let's go ahead and give him the title since he's doing it anyway. We want to recognize elders. Because we can't make them. We certainly can't elect them. Brother elders. It's these two verses that I've been hung up on all week. And maybe you too. Because I can't read this list without immediately thinking about all the ways I don't even come close. I mean, even just this past week, I was in a conversation with somebody who who was strongly disagreeing with me about a policy in the church. And to my shame, I I could just feel my insides just welling with anger because of this conversation. And yet ringing in my head was, but but an elder is, is someone who is not quick to anger. Brothers, at every point... Our our own knowledge, not just perception, our, our own knowledge of our failure at this point looms large in our eyes. Who is sufficient? Who is sufficient to care for God's people? Who really is sufficient to be entrusted with the household of God? Not one of us. Not a single man here. But friends, Jesus Christ is. Brothers, Jesus Christ is sufficient for this. And his spirit is at work in each of us. So let us be quick to acknowledge to one another and even to the congregation our own shortcomings and our failures. And then let us turn our gaze to the cross of Christ. And find the sufficiency that we need in order to continue to lead. For surely Christ died as much for our failure to be blameless as elders. As he did for any other sin we've ever committed. And then let us give ourselves again in humility to the work of growing in grace and caring for God's people. Brothers, I think this is also a reminder to us that some of our most important work as elders does not happen in our Tuesday night meetings. Actually, some of our most important work as elders happens in our daily and and even weekly meetings with the family, with with the household. So, So, brothers, right now you are engaged in the work of eldering because you are sitting here with the people that you're shepherding under the word of God, worshiping with them praying with them, 
confessing with them. And, and, and every day, as we, as we visit and as, as we make phone calls, as, as we counsel, as we mentor, as we comfort, as we encourage, as, as we give correction and, and direction, in all of those ways, we are serving as overseers. And frankly, I think probably in all of those ways, in, it, it, more, more importantly than probably anything we ever do in our meetings together. I, I honestly think, brothers, that just as a, as a father interacts with his family every day, so should we. Uh, it, it might simply be through prayer. As we regularly pray through the directory and pray for this congregation by name. It, it might be through personal contact in somebody's home or, or here at church or, or in a hospital. It, it might be in a small group. It, it, it might be in a Sunday school class. But one way or another, brothers, there should never be a single day that goes by that we are not giving oversight to the spiritual family of God that has been entrusted to us. Elders should be proven. Elders should be blameless. Finally, elders should be certain. They should be certain. Look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Paul doesn't want self-confident men as elders. He doesn't want men who are taking their stand on conservative values or political platforms. He's not telling Titus to look for men who will hold fast to their own local tradition. No, he, he tells Titus, look for men who are certain of the truth of the gospel message and are holding fast to that message as it's been handed down to them by the apostles. He wants men who are convinced of the truth and whose grasp of the gospel message cannot be pried loose. He is looking for courageous men who are willing to plant their flag on the battleground of truth on the gospel. But like all the other characteristics that we've seen so far, the point here isn't conviction for conviction's sake. The point is not theological correctness for its own sake. No, elders are to be men of theological conviction so that they can encourage. So that they can encourage the rest of the family. And so that they can rebuke those who speak against the gospel. The word that Paul uses there that, that's translated in most of our Bibles encourage literally means to, to call people to one side. We, we might translate it exhort. This is not what a classroom lecturer does. This is what a coach does. And, and not just a coach who's, who's standing over on the sideline, you know, barking out directions. Now, this is what a player coach does. Or, or to change the image, this is what a platoon leader does. To change the image yet again, this is what a father does. He takes his knowledge, his, his grasp of the truth, and he uses it to rally the troops. He uses it to encourage his own teammates. He uses it to call his children to follow him as he walks through life. Now, sometimes this is also going to mean rebuking those who speak against the truth. People who are trying to discourage the team or, or mislead the family. We're going to look at that specifically next week as, as Paul turns his attention to false teachers. 
He's concerned about that because error innervates and discourages. Falsehood sows seeds of mistrust. It, falsehood undermines the gospel. It, it hurts the family. So it's not just that elders encourage. It is also that they refute and oppose. But, but, but whether we think about this positively or negatively, the, the point is that elders must be theologians because elders are in the race. We're not standing over on the sidelines. No, we're, we're actually in the race with the rest of the church. And, and our goal isn't just so that, well, I hope I finish. No, no, my goal is that we finish together, that we complete the race together. And if we're going to be able to, to exhort our fellow members to keep on running with us and not give up, if we're, if we're going to be able to, to speak sound doctrine, health and life-giving doctrine into their lives, if we're going to be those who, who can rebuke and refute those that would try to feed the family poison, then, brothers, we've got to give ourselves to a knowledge of the gospel. We, we, we've got to give ourselves to holding fast to the truth so that we can speak it into the lives of the people that, that have been entrusted to us. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it is this life-giving truth that we most want you to understand. I don't really care if you understand much about me or my role as an elder. I want you to understand this trustworthy message. Because this trustworthy message is the good news of the gospel. That though we deserve God's wrath because of our sin and rebellion against him, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Because there on the cross, he took the place of sinners. He took the place of rebels and suffered our punishment for us. So, so that when we, when we repent of our, of our rebellion, when we turn away from our sin and instead put our faith in Christ, we're not, we're not only forgiven, we're actually adopted into the family. God's family. God puts his spirit in us and he begins to change us. So that increasingly we are characterized by, by what we read about there in verse 8. We all increasingly become Men and women who are holy and disciplined and upright and goodness loving and people loving. And the good news of this message is that someday we who are in Christ now will be with Christ forever. That's the message that all Christians believe. It's the message that as elders we are called to teach and to model. And it is the message that God calls you to accept today. If you don't know him, you're going to get to hear more about this in just a few minutes as, as we hear Karen Knauss give her testimony of how she came to understand Christ as her savior. We would love to explore with you what it would look like for you to do the same. As a church, we should care whether or not our elders know and hold fast to sound doctrine. And that's not to say that as you're thinking about elders They've all got to know as much as Todd Miles knows or as much as Jim Sweeney knows. I saw Jim. He's, he's around here somewhere. Um, we're not saying that they've got to be formal theologians. It is to say that it is not enough to recognize men who are just extroverted and warm and affectionate and that we like to be around. We need, you and I, we need player coaches 
who can spot the difference between truth and error and call us to their side. We need men who know that as important as warmth and affection are, it is not my personal love for you that keeps you in the race. But the truth of God's word spoken to you with the authority of God himself that keeps you in the race. So we want to look for men to lead who are quick to take us to the scriptures, who are faithful to to remind us of the gospel and who are unflagging in their call to persevere with them in the race that God has set before us. Brother elders, here's our goal. Not glory, not personal glory, not, not pride and prestige, not command and control, not the preservation of tradition. Our goal is to lead encouraging lives. The race is long. The battle that our people are facing is hard. They need more than our love. They need more than our sentiment. They need proven, blameless, certain men. Let's be those men, brother elders. Let us be those men. Let us give ourselves to growing in our own certainty and knowledge of the truth. Let us give ourselves to caring for our families. Let us give ourselves to being beyond reproach when it comes to loving the people of God. And brothers and sisters, Henson Baptist Church, let's raise up more of them to join us in this work because the people of God are worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We, we thank you for the gift of leadership. We, we thank you that, that you do not ask of us to run this, this race alone. You do not ask us to, to pursue the Christian life in, in, in the isolation of some inner mystical experience, but that, that you give us elders to encourage us. Father, we pray that you'd give us more. We pray that you would make the ones that we have more faithful, more godly, more effective in the work that you've entrusted to them. And we pray that all of this would happen to your glory and to the great benefit of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.